0: It's good to see everybody today, and um, thank you for being here in the midst of all of the uh, wet weather. I know there are a whole lot of things that try to dampen people's motivations to come out and worship, but congratulations, you pushed through once again, (laughs) okay? It is just true, and so um, it's a privilege to be here with you today. Uh, My name's Roland, and I'm the lead pastor here, and before we get started, I'd just like to uh, say a very special Uh, welcome home to three very special people. Yes, that's right. We love them. The Fiedlers, number one, Tegan and Sarah Fiedler, okay, who is now pregnant. It's going to be coming forth with child, okay, and Miss Victoria, Sister Victoria, who's coming home. been here visiting over the course of the weekend. And so we want to say that and also a special happy birthday. Uh, she's not here to us, um, with us today, but if you could text Kendall, Kendall's birthday is today. So wish her a happy birthday. And not only uh, Kendall, but our very own Christy Foster. It is her birthday today. If I didn't realize that it's your birthday... I'm sorry, <laughs> okay, but just keep coming around, and you know we love, love, love everybody. So guys, here's the uh, good news. What we've been doing is, um, over the course of this uh, week, we've um, past several weeks, we've been going through a series called "The Joshua Generation." And what we've been trying to do is understand the scripture in terms of uh, what God did in the Old Testament uh, through the generation that he brought out of Egypt and into the Promised Land and what lessons we could take from that as a people um, of God, the people of Jesus Christ today and what we're supposed to do in the cities in which we live. And so today we're going to end this series before we go into Back to Church Sunday. And what we're going to do is we're going to end it um, hopefully in a thoughtful manner. Uh, What I mean by a thoughtful manner is we're going to end with a familiar story, which is the story of the taking of the city of Jericho. Um, How many of you have heard of the story of Jericho before? Okay. But we're going to try to not just address it in terms of what happened, um, but also why certain things might have happened, and then also how we're to apply those principles through Jesus Christ in our walk with him today as we serve the city in which we live. Okay. So let's pray, and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you that, uh, God, you've given us your eternal, everlasting word to help us know Jesus, the Son of God, who came to this earth and lived sinlessly. Father, performed signs, wonders, and miracles, proving his divinity. Father, and then he died sacrificially on that cross so that Not only could we uh, be forgiven of sins, but through his resurrection from the dead, have new life and eternal life in him. God, we're asking you that today, that you would help us to see the gospel through your word, that everything we read and everything that we meditate on, we would see Jesus more clearly and his heart, not only for us, but for the people that surround us. In your mighty name we pray, amen. Okay, so today, if you're taking notes, what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about taking the city. That is uh, really the theme of today's message, and uh, we're going to talk about it, obviously, from the book of Joshua and the Israelites going into the city of Jericho. Um, But when we're thinking about a Joshua generation, one of the things that I wanted to sort of frame this message with is understanding that a Joshua-type generation has a heart to impact the city with the love and gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, people can say amen to that, okay? When you're thinking about a Joshua generation, you're thinking beyond just a personal um, application that the scripture has to me in my personal life and my personal battles. And what happens is is that it comes to a place where we're seeing ourselves used by God to actually be the hands and feet of Jesus in the cities in which we live. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about it in three parts in terms of the care. That God has for the city. Number two, the commitment that we need to have to the cities that in which we find ourselves living, and then number three, the commission that He's given us as we live as a part of these cities. Okay, so it's the care, the commitment, and the commission. And uh, if you have a Bible today, what we're going to do is we're going to start in Joshua chapter six, starting in verses one through seven, and we're going to start with the care. It says, "Now Jericho was shut up." inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. I like how that begins because a lot of times we think that if the gospel is going to go forward, it's only the easy cases that we get, Right? But he says, listen, I've given you their king, its king and its mighty men of valor as well. Have faith for that, right? He says, "'You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark.'" And if you've been with us the past several weeks, we remember that the Ark of the Covenant of God was a direct representation in Israel of the presence of God. So he wasn't sending them to do anything that he himself wasn't going to go ahead of them and accomplish by his power and by his strength himself, okay? So he says, march around with this Ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, take up the ark of the covenant and let the seven priests bear the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward. March around the city and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord." So whenever we read this, we understand that God had a very clear line of sight. He had in his mind and in his heart the city and the people in the city that he wanted to reach. Jericho, if you understand anything about it, was a high-walled-up city. It was one of the most important cities in that region at that time, a city of trade, a city of culture, a city of influence in the surrounding region. And what we see is that God, though he could have reached anywhere at any time, he chose to have the influence. Israelites after crossing the Jordan start with a very high walled up hard place. He had them start with a place that would take a miracle to in fact reach. The Israelites though they came out of Egypt by signs and wonders compared to the nations around them they were still small in number and not very influential at the time. Of course, their influence was growing because of the miracles that were taking place repeatedly as the Lord brought them out of Egypt by signs, wonders, and miracles, brought them through the Red Sea, and then now brought them through the Jordan so that the city around them, the nations around them, their hearts began to melt before the God that they served. And they began to say, this God is God overall. Though we've served other gods up to this point, this God is showing himself stronger than anything that I've experienced. Experienced up to this point. And so we see that God in reflecting on the city, we see that he's telling the Israelites to take the city, but he's also expressing a care for the city. Now this is interesting because of the fact that he's saying to go in and to drive the people out and demolish it, right? But what we must understand is that we must as Christians care about reaching the city because it matters to God. It matters to the world, and it matters to your children's future. Whenever you think about reaching cities, you think about that it matters to God, it matters to the world, and it matters to your children's future. Why do we know this? We know this because we've got to understand the importance of cities like Chicago in which we live. Chicago, we know that it's the third largest city in um, America right now, but it's still one of the top 40 cities in terms of product um, orientation for the world economy. What you, understand, what you have to understand is that there are at least three things in understanding the importance of cities. Number one, that there's a theological aspect to it, and the trajectory of our nations are determined by city centers. Is that not true? What happens in city centers actually spills out and pours out so that it affects everything else around them. Whether we like it or not, what's going on for good or for bad in city centers is affecting other nations. Whether it be um, the suburbs or, or as a western nation, it's affecting other parts of the world. John F. Kennedy actually said this about cities, that we will neglect our cities to our peril, for in neglecting them, we neglect the nation. In neglecting cities, we in fact neglect the nation. We also understand that the vast majority of provision and societal innovation is produced in city centers. Uh, There was a man who wrote an article and he commented that several years ago, the Guardian newspaper, which is basically an English publication, how many of you have read um, anything from the Guardian before, okay? So the Guardian newspaper in Great Britain did a special issue entitled, The Future of Cities. One writer opined, just 10 years ago, cities were seen as vital contributors to the global economy. That's no longer true. Today, cities are the global economy. The 40 largest cities or mega regions account for two-thirds of the world's output. Two-thirds of the world's output. Several, years, um, several weeks ago, we saw that we heard from our Polish pastor, and he was talking about the trend that by 2030, they said if things continue, that 80% of not just Chicago's, but the world's population will migrate to city centers and we see this as an ongoing trend. Finally, we also understand the importance of cities that the moral compass of nations are literally shaped in city centers. The moral compass of nations are shaped in city centers. A man named Timothy Keller, who many of you are familiar with, he's um, influential. He had a church in Manhattan for many years, and he's um, been influential in planting churches, gospel-centered churches, in city centers throughout the world. And one of the things that he said about um, ministry in city centers is this, that early Christianity, I'm sorry, he said, even if 80% of the population of a country are Christian believers, if even 80% of the country are Christian believers... They will have almost no cultural influence if the Christians do not live in cultural centers and work in culture-forging fields, such as academia, publishing, media, entertainment, and the arts. The assumption that society will improve simply by more Christian believers being present is no longer valid. And if you look at the landscape of the world in which we live, is that not true? you have a very small minority of people who have a voice who are shaping the culture in which we live. It's a small minority of the population that's affected by certain things, but their voices are very loud. Their voices are very loud and it's basically changing the landscape in which we live. And much of it is coming out of places like Jericho in which we see the Israelites reaching. Now, if you look and understand the uh, scripture, you understand that God doesn't just give commands in scripture, but he's also giving you an understanding of his missiological approach, his missiological approach to reaching the world. And what I mean by that is how does God in fact work in society to reach the world? And when you study the scripture, you see that the Apostle Paul, who wrote three-fourths of the New Testament letters and was planting churches throughout the pagan world, we understand that the um, the Apostle Paul understood that city senders export their values to the surrounding towns, villages, and provinces. The missiological pattern in Acts was that Paul focused primarily on the city centers of trade, commerce, culture, and thought in the establishment of gospel-preaching churches and left it to them to reach the surrounding areas that were pagan. If you study how he actually went about doing things, you see that he focused for an intentional reason on these things. He said that the whole world is important to God, The whole world, people everywhere need to be reached. But when Paul was preaching, he said, I've got to focus in these areas, these centers of thought, commerce, and trade to be able to reach everywhere else. Why? Because people are going to come there. And much like Chicago, being a transient city, right? You have people coming for uh, academics, you have them coming for work, you have them coming to make their footprint in the world, and then they're sent everywhere else, right? Throughout the U.S. and throughout the nations to take whatever they've gained or grown in in that place to the rest of the world. It's a missiological approach that we see represented in Scripture. And there was a man named Rodney Stark. He's still alive, but he's an eminent sociologist. And he was explaining why basically this approach was taken. And he said this. He said that early Christianity was primarily, if you study it, when you look at early Christianity, it was primarily an urban movement. The original meaning of the word pagan, how many people have heard the word pagan before, right? You sort of throw it around and it's like, yeah, this is pagan or that's pagan, you know, but we don't know its roots. He said the original word pagan, paganus, meant literally rural person, or more colloquially, they were being pejorative when they said country hick. It came to have religious meaning because after Christianity had triumphed in the cities, most of the rural people remained unconverted. That's the history even of the word and the history of missions in the early church. So we see that even in the Old Testament, as God saying that you could go anywhere, but the first place that I'm sending you to is Jericho. It's for a reason. It's for a reason. And God sends us first to the hard place, the high, walled-up city of Jericho that demands a miracle to reach. And the reason why is because once we take this by faith, the other surrounding areas will become a metaphorical certainty. Anybody remember uh, having dreams as a young person? Maybe you're still young. (laughs) <laughs> not so much anymore, salt and pepper, peppers here, right? And you see very specifically that you wanted to go to certain places, right? And one of the adages attached to certain places were like, New York, it's a hard place to go, right? It's a hard place to make it. But what was the old adge- adage? If I can make it there, I can make it anywhere, right? Because if you go to New York, right, it's hard, is it not? Anybody ever lived in New York before? Anybody ever come from, okay, my my family was Jamaican, so again, we only go to either Miami or New York. We ended up in New York, okay? (laughs) Sort of like, but it was difficult, right? It was difficult there. But that was the adage, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Same with faith that God points his people towards high-walled-up places to build something so that as you reach the world, you make it there, you can make it anywhere. You have faith for anywhere. Make sense? And what we see is that, It was a little bit confusing because in the midst of God's care for the city, we see that he was, in that cultural context, driving out, driving out a particular people who he was saying that he wanted to have displaced so the Israelites could take ground. Now, if you grew up outside of the church like me, that begs a question. Did God, in fact, commend something that we would see as genocide to actually establish his people in his place? Anybody ever wondered that before? Should. That was a big question for me whenever I was coming up. And if God cares about the city, why was there a seeming genocide of the Canaanite people? Well, I'd like to present to you at least five things. And again, this is not exhaustive. This topic is deep. You need to think through it and pray through it. And if you have questions after the service, don't leave disgruntled. Come and talk about it. I love for you to ask questions because there's a whole approach to this. But number one, we've got to understand that the collapse of the walls of Jericho was a sign of God's singularity meaning that there is one God, though they serve false gods, there's only one. The Lord, our God, the Bible says is one and we're to serve him and him alone, right? Regardless of the pluralism that exists in the world today, we know that God says there is only one God, only he deserves the glory. And the only way to get to him is through Jesus Christ. And when he brought down the walls of Jericho, he was expressing his singularity and supremacy over all the false gods of the Canaanite people. Not only that, but God understands that there is a justice that he has to enact on society. We don't, like a, we don't like that as a term or a concept today, that God actually judges sin. But he does judge the, divine, the breaking of his divine law. We're all going to die once and face him in judgment. And he was giving a foreshadowing, a picture of this with a group of people. And God's justice had to be enacted for not a period of time, but hundreds of years of reprehensible sins against the divine law of the creator. If you look in Genesis 15 um, verses 12 through 16, even the Israelites going into bondage into Egypt, it was a time period set for them until the sins of the Canaanites had been fully realized. And after hundreds of years, God came and dealt with the sin of that land. He said justice had to come, but in this time, God gave people opportunity to turn. It was a foreshadowing of the final judgment to come. Also, though, you need to understand that in a barbaric society, see, we we, a lot of times culturally project things. We read the scripture and we take the benefits that we have of a Christian influence today and we project it on what we're reading back then. But how many people know that that society was not the same as our society today? It was a barbaric society. Does everybody understand? The sword was the law of the land. Kill or be killed was the law of the land. And in a barbaric society, things not dealt with in the city would ultimately come for the faith, meaning syncretism, and the life of Israelite children if not dealt with when they went into the land. An example of that is if you've ever read the book of Esther before. How many of you people have ever read the book of Esther? Okay, you heard of a man named Haman. A man named Haman who was a descendant of one of the ancient enemies of Israel. And in Haman's time in the book of Esther, he was a descendant who tried to ethnically cleanse the Israelites because there was a desire to get rid of the ancient enemy that remained, and that was the society in which they lived. You cannot escape, well, this is a point, you cannot escape the repercussions of not dealing with the th- um, things that are breaking the commands of God by relocation or cohabitation, ignoring but not addressing the enemies of God. Back in the 1980s, people used to talk about all the problems in urban centers and they would talk about, hey, if I could just isolate myself from it, then it won't affect me or my children. <laughs> But then eventually what happened is that the influence of the urban centers came for the rest of society. And they began to deal with the same issues that the city centers were. Why? Because they weren't being addressed. Does this make sense to you? Finally, the Canaanites would have had the opportunity to turn to God, just as those who left Egypt during the plagues Exodus, you can reference this, Exodus 33 through 38, and just as Rahab and her family had done. However, they chose not to do so. They chose not to do so. You have to understand that even in the midst of the great plagues, did you know that some of the Egyptians went out with the Israelites? Anybody know that? That's in Scripture. That Rahab was a prostitute, a Gentile prostitute, in the midst of Jericho during the time that the Israelites were coming for conquest. But he said, hey, listen, if you would turn to this God, he will save both you and your family. You have an opportunity to turn. So God is not full of bloodlust. God is coming to save. But he has got to deal with the sin that's wreaking havoc on society and humanity. Does that make sense? It would be unjust of God not to deal with the sin in the world that's destroying the planet that belongs to him. Hello? So understanding this, we understand that God still has care for the city, but to reach it, it's going to take a commitment from the people of God. It's going to take a commitment from the people of God and we must commit to, everybody say, long-term. Long-term obedience to God's instructions with the church community to reach the cities in which we live. We live in a microwave generation, and everybody wants it right now, right now, right now, right? It's sort of like we lived with an entitled mentality, and if I I studied for a few years, I should be making my six-figure salary right now. If I pray a prayer, it should have I should have heavens open up and my prayers come answered from heaven right now, immediately as I pray. Right? If I am believing for a spouse, I sh- I looked at somebody so they should come and propose right now. <laughs> right? No, right? That's just the truth. That's how people live. But the truth of the matter is that when God calls us to something, he calls to a long-term commitment to actually accomplish that which he's saying we need to accomplish. And we look at this, again, picking up in that same scripture in Joshua 6. In verse 12, it says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horn before the ark of the Lord, walked on. And they blew the trumpets continually continually has anybody ever prayed for somebody before expecting them to come to Jesus and they just didn't come immediately and you had to pray continually or how about somebody who you were believing for who lived in your own household that's something would change in them come on married folk something would change in them and so you made an appeal to heaven Not just once, not just twice, but continually. And things didn't change. But what did God say to do? He said, walk around it once the first day, once the second day, once the third day, once on into the sixth day, and on the seventh day, double it up, (laughs) right? Walk around it seven times. And when you walk around it seven times and blow that trumpet, I'm going to come through and I'm going to bring those walls down and if you have even been struggling with even sin in your own life and wondering how you can overcome, let me tell you, it's going to take concentrated effort to starve the thing you've been feeding for years. Don't expect it to just change overnight because you've got a new revelation. You've got to do things differently if you expect God to bring those walls that have been barriers between you and him down. It was a continual Ministry going around those walls until the walls inevitably by God's hand came down. And what God wants to do to reach not just you but a city if he wants to build with those who are stable. Do you know what I mean by stable? What I mean by stable is antithesis of the flakiness that we have in our generation. Blown here and there by every whim blown here and there by every challenge that faces us. I love our grandparents' generation. For some of you now, it's your great-grandparents' generation, right? The World War II generation. They were called the great generation. Why? Because they knew how to what? They knew how to fight. Fight for something of value. Nowadays, we've been given so much that we don't know how to fight until we see that which we're going after received. Does anybody agree with that? And what God's looking for is a people who are stable, who are committed to his purposes and one another to commit to the purposes of a city until the walls that are keeping them from him come down. A commitment. What that means, and it's a challenge to me, is that God is not flaky like us. We need to stop attaching God's name to everything we want to do. Anybody ever begin guilty of that before? Pray to prayer and I, to, I already had in my mind what I wanted to do, so I prayed about it and then was somehow convinced that God was in agreement with what I already determined to do. I'm sure the Israelites, after going around that third day and seeing nothing happen, could have been like, you know, God probably meant only four. <laughs> One more day and we're done, Right? Everybody good with that? And that, how many people, everybody, they would have got a loud amen from that? A loud amen. We need to stop using God's voice as a scapegoat every time things get difficult or we lose interest in something. Oh, Oh, gosh. Losing interest in something applies to things like our relationships that are God-given. It applies to things like your marriage after you've been married for a period of time. It includes things like your career that God's appointed for you, where you choose to live, or your financial stewardship if you're trying to get out of debt and do things God's way. It includes your calling. We need to stop blaming God every time we change our minds. What we need is follow through because God hasn't changed his mind about the cities that he's trying to reach. You need to let your yes be yes and your no, no when you offer it to God and to the things that he's called you to do and be. No, is also the issue of the first fruits because whenever they went into Jericho and the walls came down, not only did they uh, go in to take the city, but they take some of the plunder of the land. And then taking some of the plunder of the land, he said, listen, I don't want you to touch any of the first fruits. I won't want you to touch any of the first fruits. This city, this first of the cities belongs to me and everything in it, Right? So at the expense of your firstborn and those who come after them, yeah, I mean, the, this, uh, if you take or touch any of the plunder of the land, there will be judgment that comes, right? So in the commitment that we have, he is basically setting up this principle of an ongoing commitment to giving him the first fruits. Not the leftovers, but the first fruits of all of our lives, right? A commitment to doing that over and over again. Why? Because that was a mandate or a command that existed through generations, And what you see later in the book of Kings is when they ignored that command after several generations had passed, then the judgment that was promised came upon those who ignored it. There needs to be a commitment to his word over a period of time, giving him the first fruits. And it's nothing other than what Jesus himself has done when he gave, I'm sorry, God the Father has done when he gave us his first and his best in Jesus Christ. The question is, have I given God my first fruits lately? (laughs) Not did I once give God my first fruits, but have I given my God my first fruits lately? Because there's a commitment that he takes to it that continues not when things are easy, but when things get hard. Anybody know that? And he says a commitment to giving him our first fruits is what's going to enable us not only to live in his purposes, but also have a benefit for the city. But finally, if we can do that, we not only understand God's care for the city, we not only understand the commitment it takes to reach a city, but then we understand the commission that he's given us to do so. The commission that he's given us to do so. And we must embrace our commission. If God's concerned about the city and the people therein, we must embrace our commission to reach specific individuals and families to see the kingdom of God advance in the cities in which we live. We need to receive a commission. What does that mean? We need There are certain people that God has foreordained you to reach. There are certain people that surround you in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your apartment, with your friendship group that God has said in advance, I'm working in their hearts and I've appointed you to reach them. Understanding my care and commitment to them. And having a care and consistent commitment for them means doing things practically like starting a VIP prayer list. We talked about it in our community group training yesterday. Developing a VIP prayer list where it's sort of like these are the people that I know God's put in my life, whether it be family members, friends, co-workers, neighbors, or the like, who God has given me a commissioning to reach them in the midst of him reaching this city. And so the encouragement would be, number one, to start with that prayer list in whatever city you find yourself in whatever place you find yourself and pray for them consistently and not just individually but with other people joining you to actually reach them as you reach the cities in which you live. Joshua 6, through 25 actually gives us what, the story of what happened once Rahab had committed herself to the people of God and the things of God and how they had to specifically go after Rahab and her family in the midst of the plunder that was taking place in Jericho to make sure that God's promise to that family, their life was saved. And it says in verse 22, But to the men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house, right? So remember the spies were sent in. They were hidden. Um, They were hid by uh, uh, Rahab so that they wouldn't be taken out by the people of Jericho whenever they were spying out the land. And now they, after making a promise to her that if you would hide us, we're going to come back for you in the midst of the plunder. And we're going to make sure that you and your family are taken care of. It's time for that now. It's time for that now. And Joshua says, "'Go into the prostitute's house "'and bring out from there the woman "'and all who belong to her, "'as you swore to her. "'So the young men who had been spies "'went in and brought out Rahab "'and her father and mother and brothers "'and all who belonged to her. "'And they brought all her relatives "'and put them outside the camp of Israel. "'And the city was burned with fire.'" So literally, they went and they got the commissioned people that God had appointed them to get. And if you have a, in your heart of hearts, whether it be your own children, family members, or friends, how many people have a people who immediately come to your heart that says, wait, like, this person is like, listen, I know I need to be praying for this person. I've been appointed by God. And though somebody else might not be able to reach them, I have a special place in their heart. You know what I'm talking about? We have a rapport that other people don't have. They they talk to me and listen to me in ways that other people don't. That's an appointment from God to go in and bring them out so that the city in which they live could be reached. We cannot ignore that commissioning if God himself is going to reach the cities. Because ultimately, cities aren't just the buildings. The cities are the people who live therein. And when he's talking about reaching cities, he's not talking about leveling buildings. He's not talking about leveling fields. He's talking about reaching the people, the population that make up the cities in which we find ourselves. And ultimately, we see the miracle of God that walls come down so that people can participate in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. Why do we know this? Because the mission of the church was clearly expressed by Jesus when he said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely the ark, the living ark of God, he said, surely I am with you always to the very ends of the age. That's what Jesus said. That's why as our church, we even have our mission statement, winning the loss, making disciples, and training leaders to establish Christ-honoring churches that multiply in the city of Chicago and the nations. And we advance in the city as opposed to the Old Testament model. We advance in the city in the love and with the truth of God's word. That's how we advance in a city today, with the love and the truth of God's word. And we'll end by saying this. This is a scripture that all of us should know. But whenever Jesus was talking about the great mission that he had to reach the cities in which he found himself, and remember, what the city that he constantly circled around was what? Jerusalem, where he would inevitably give his life and die for the sins of the world. He had his entire ministry in a 30-mile radius. And he turned the world upside down by concentrating, being committed to in that 33-plus-year period on a 30-mile 30, 30 radius. Can you imagine that? He turned the world upside down by that concentration, by that commitment, by that care, by that commissioning. And when he was basically describing what it is that he came to do, he said in John 3.16, For God so loved the world... He so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, that means whoever, right? So if you go back to Old Testament times, right, whoever would have put their hope in the Israel's, Israel's God who was coming at them, and the, uh, the Messiah who would inevitably come, whoever, whoever believes in him, shall not perish but have everlasting life if you found yourself to be a hard case, up to this point, whoever means you, you can repent and turn to the living God today. Barriers that have kept you from him can come down so you can see the living God clearly today. You can treat women differently today if you have a history of not doing so. You can be freed of drunkenness today if you have a history of being bound in that manner. You can be different today by the gospel of God because he so loved you. And he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Think Rahab and her family. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God meaning that our actions condemn us. God's not trying to. He's trying to save us, but our actions and our sins are the things that condemn us, and he's trying to pull us out, just like he pulled Rahab out of the life of prostitution that she was in. And inevitably, as I said before, became one of the ancestors of Jesus in the flesh. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be seen clearly that his works have been carried out in God." So the same miracle that the Israelites needed to bring the walls of Jericho down are the same miracle that a man and a woman need today to change their lives. The same miracle. Rather than it being external, now it's internal. And that's the beauty of it all. That's the beauty of all, because he changes us from the inside out, and then it becomes a permanent change that we never go back on, never go back on. Telling a friend this week, though I came out of a life of sexual immorality, right? Been married to my wife going on this October 18 years. 18, yes. No, yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And though I came out of a family of infidelity and all types of cheating and scandals and things like that, guess how often I've cheated on my wife? That's right. (laughs) Not once. Not once. By the power, no, and listen, for my family, that's a miracle. You hear me? For my family, that's a miracle. By the power of God, do I stand. By the grace of God, have I been changed. And regardless of where you're coming from, he can change you too. And as you call out to him, the miracle that was worked at Jericho will be the miracles that mark your life as you honor the living God who loved you and gave his son for you the mighty, mighty Jesus in his mighty, mighty name. Amen? Amen. All right. So we're going to go back into worship now. And what we're going to ask you to do is basically respond. Regardless of where you've been before God up to this point, if you've come in somebody who did not know God, here's the good news. The cross of Jesus is available to you today where he says, I can take all of the sins that you had up to now on myself so that you might be pardoned and forgiven. He can make you a new man or woman and give you new life in him today. If you've already been a Christian, then I ask you to think through the things that we just talked about and understand God's care for the city, the commitment that it takes to reach it, and then finally, the commissioning that he's given you to reach the people therein. Amen? Amen.